Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts now and make us people who feel gratitude, people who honor you in ways that are appropriate. And Lord, make us always mindful of your presence and your goodness and your promises. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The other night, we had the privilege, our family did, of going over to the Pangs house for dinner. And uh, I want to give you sort of an alternative reality thought experiment. Imagine if this had happened if we, when we got to the Pangs. Okay, this is not what happened. Imagine if this is what had happened. Um, uh, Johnson and Emily are of Chinese descent. And often, uh, people from that culture, they uh, take their shoes off when they when in the house, and so uh, we got to the front door, and we left our shoes at the front door. But imagine if they had said, okay, the shoes go here, and we had just sort of looked at them, and then decided to walk on in and not take our shoes off. And then we didn't do this, but imagine if we had just sort of, as a family, done our own thing all night long. Maybe, maybe glancing up now and then to say, oh, hey, uh, Johnson, I'm out of water. I need, can, can, I, can I have some water here? And, and really not paying any attention to them, not having any conversation with them, not showing any deference to them, never thanking them for having us over, never saying anything nice about the food, just coming in, acting how we wanted to act, and then when we were ready to leave, saying, all right, we're out, and leaving. They would rightly have been offended by the fact that we had disregarded their customs, their, um, their policies in their home, and they, had, they would rightly be offended that the thanks and the honor that was owed to them was not shown. Now with that in mind, let me invite you for a moment to apply in your, in your imagination again, apply the golden rule to God. You know, sometimes I think, I think people are tempted to think something like this. Why does God want gratitude from us? Why does God want glory? Why does God want honor from us? Well, let me invite you to put yourself in his place. And if you had done for people, for you, if you had done for God, or I'm sorry, if you had done for you everything that God has done for you, What would you expect? How would you want you to respond? If you would open your Bible this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 50. And this psalm makes very clear what God wants from us. And it's just two simple things. God wants gratitude and honor from us. And it is not wrong for him to want those things. God deserves gratitude and honor from us. This psalm breaks down in a really straightforward way. Verses 1 through 6 announce that God has at last come for judgment. And then in verses 7 through 15, God rebukes those who are trying to keep the covenant. 
And then in verses 16 through 23, he rebukes those who are not trying to keep the covenant, those who are in fact breaking the covenant. And for both groups of people, what God is going to do is correct mistaken theology, deficient ideas about who he is and why he wants to be worshipped and about how he conducts himself. So as, as we look at this psalm, let me, let me once again step back for just a second and, and again walk you through this, this section of the psalms. And so uh, back in Psalms 42 and 43, we had this individual psalmist uh, asking himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? And then that individual uh, cast that individual person who is cast down in soul because he's not experiencing God's goodness and God's promises. Again, it, 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 it grows out to a whole community of people in Psalm 44 whose souls are bowed down in Psalm 44, 25. But then their king comes in Psalm 45 and he sets up this city that has a river flowing through it in Psalm 46. And then all the nations are summoned to celebrate God who is the great king in Psalm 47. And then they, they marvel at how the glory of God is seen in the city in Psalm 48. And then we saw last week in Psalm 49 that the false hope that money is going to buy redemption, that money is going to buy salvation, that false hope is, is exposed as, as false in Psalm 49. And now we come to Psalm 50 where the Lord comes forth for judgment. So let's look at Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6, which describes God coming forth for judgment. Look with me at verse 1. The psalmist is trying to bring out the solemnity, the gravity of this situation by piling up these references to the one who is about to speak. He says... The mighty one, God, the Lord. And, and by, by, in this stately way, bringing out these three different titles for God, the psalmist is impressing upon us the Lord's authority and majesty. This extended introduction of the speaker is meant to, to, to bring out the importance of of the one who is about to call all the world to account. And so look at what he does here in verse 1. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So this is comprehensive. This is a summons to all people everywhere. And, and, and this, this comprehensive summons, it functions the same way that the titles functioned. That is, that, that the psalm, uh, the psalmist is impressing upon us the importance of this moment, the significance of, of this instant when God is going to arise for judgment. Now, in the rest of the psalm, if you, if you look, for instance, at verse 7, where the Lord says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. And, and then even when he turns to the wicked down in verse 16, when he says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? It seems to assume that everyone addressed is aware of the statutes and is at some level aware of the covenant, which would not apply to people beyond the borders of Israel. And so I think that 
the psalm is particularly focused upon the people of Israel, but by extension, it applies to all people everywhere. So if God is going to speak this way to the people in covenant with him, how much more to those who, who ought to recognize him as God, but maybe who don't uh, enjoy the benefits of the covenant? And, and I say that because, uh, again, the, the earth is summoned there is in verse 1, and, and everyone from the rising of the sun to its setting. So the God of the Bible is not summoning merely one nation or one local tribe, but anyone on whom the sun's rays fall, which is to say everyone, everywhere. And then verse 2 uh, of Psalm 50 it seems to assume what has happened in, in the preceding psalms. So Psalm 46 uh, described the way that the earth was giving way and the mountains were being moved into the sea. And then Psalm 48 describes the way that, that God's glorious city of Zion is, is the place where his glory is, is displayed. And now Psalm 50 verse 2 announces out of Zion the perfection of of beauty, or we, we might say the completion of beauty. Maybe you've been to the great cities of the earth. Maybe you've seen uh, Rome or, or Paris or Jerusalem, and, and you've, you've seen these glorious buildings. And, and this text seemed to, seems to be indicating that Zion, this future Zion, is going to perfect everything anticipated by those great cities. And so out of this perfection of beauty, Zion, God comes shining forth here in verse 2. And then verse 3 tells us, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Uh, down in verse 21, um, the Lord is going to rebuke the wicked, and he's going to say, these things you have done and I have been silent. So the silence, our God comes and he does not keep silence the silence seems particularly focused on the way that God is not upholding all of his standards in the way that the Bible says he's going to. God is allowing the wicked to continue in their way. God is allowing things to be done. It would, it, in the analogy uh, that I started with, it would be like Johnson saying, okay, the shoes go here. And then we just walk on in without taking our shoes off and he doesn't say anything about it until later, maybe at the end of the meal, when finally he's going to arise and throw us out for how offensive we've been. But all through the meal, he's been keeping silence. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he says, It's true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed to this point. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate... It would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest 
sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. That day is going to come, the day when the Lord removes his hand from the floodgates of the wrath, and Psalm 50 is depicting that day. Psalm 50 verse 3 is speaking of the future moment when the silence of God will end when he comes forth. The one who is beyond compare, whose worth and glory are matchless. He will at last come forth in his radiant purity and his voice will reach to the ends of the earth. All will be summoned before him and the silence of the ages will end. Verse 3 continues here. It tells us that before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. The the fire and the the tempest, this is reminiscent again of Mount Sinai. This is the way the Lord comes in flame and thick darkness and thundercloud. The Lord comes as a consuming fire with the storm raging around him. And then verse 4 tells us that he summons the witnesses to the covenant. Back in in Deuteronomy 4.26 and in many places after that in the Bible, things like this are said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. And then the, the, the Moses or some other biblical author will go on to say what heaven and earth are coming, coming to bear witness to, the, the terms of the covenant. So here in Psalm 50 verse 4, he calls the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So it, it's, it's a court case, right? And the judge has come and those who have seen What happened? Whatever it is that is in dispute, the witnesses to the case, they're being called forth now. And these are witnesses, these are witnesses who are invoked, who are brought out, witnesses whose whose gaze has never been averted from what anyone has done, whose constant presence, the heavens and the earth, cannot be escaped, whose reliability is as solid as the earth beneath us and whose all-encompassing presence is like the atmosphere around us. There is no escaping the witnesses to the covenant. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So the people of Israel are brought before him and the Lord says here in verse 5, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So so God's covenant people, the the, the righteous and the wicked, as we'll see down in verse 16, are brought before him. And then in verse 6, it's announced, the heavens declare his righteousness. So the witnesses, what what they're going to say about the Lord is that he is altogether righteous. There is no fault to be found in him. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is. Is judge. So these witnesses, they will know the conduct of those who have who have broken the covenant in exacting detail, and they will have as full a reckoning of Yahweh's perfect righteousness, which they declare. So let's stop at this point and let's take stock, and let me give you three applications of Psalm fifty. 
verses 1 through 6. Number one, do not presume on the silence of God. We are all, we are all, in, we have these habits ingrained in us. And we do these things. We talk these ways. We act in certain ways. And we all tell ourselves at various points, it's not going to hurt anything. There won't be a reckoning for this. Oh, yes, there will. Do not presume on the silence of God. He will come. And there will be a day when the silence will end. Number two, don't despair. When you see the wicked carrying on, when it looks like maybe the wicked are going to to own the day, when it looks like they're going to get elected, they're going to stock the Supreme Court, and then they're going to have a free reign for all their wicked desires, don't despair. Don't despair. There will be a reckoning. God is going to come. They are not going to reshape and remake and redefine what is right and wrong, what is moral and immoral. The Lord will come. Number three, don't stop warning people of the wrath to come. That wrath is coming. He is going to arise. Our God comes, verse three. He does not keep silence. That future day of judgment is coming. Don't stop warning people of it. Don't stop pleading with sinners to repent for their good. In verses 7 through 15, we turn now to the Lord's own rebuke to those who seem to be trying to keep the covenant. And the Lord's message to them is, give thanks and praise. These people are trying to keep the covenant, and the Lord is going to correct mistaken theology of theirs, and then he's going to urge them, be grateful and honor me. That's what the Lord's message is. Uh, this, this section, Psalms, Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15, breaks into two parts. In verses 7 through 11, the Lord explains why he's not rebuking the Israelites for their sacrifices. Although he does set out to correct something they seem to have misunderstood about sacrifice, And then in verses 12 through 15, he continues the correction of an apparent misunderstanding about sacrifice and calls for the kind of sacrifice he wants, that of thanks and praise. So he has summoned his his covenant partners in verse 5, gather to me my faithful ones, and now he's going to address his people in verse 7. So something remarkable happens right here. The psalmist presents Yahweh himself speaking, which is, that's a rather significant claim, isn't it? For a human writer to say, this is what God says. And, and I think this is just one, one more way that the Bible attests itself to be the very word of God. This is not the kind of claim that, that I mean, ancient people were not stupid, right? Ancient Israelites would not look at something like this and say, oh, okay, whatever you say. No, ancient Israelites, they're going to look at a psalm like this and they're going to test it. They're going to say, do we recognize this as the word of God? And then if indeed they say the answer to that question is yes, they will have concluded that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired, I mean, this is a psalm of Asaph in the superscription, so maybe this guy Asaph wrote it. What they're concluding is that the Holy Spirit inspired Asaph to communicate the very word of the living God. And this is what he says to Israel in verse 7. 
Hear, O my people. And I will speak. And he's not only going to speak, he's going to bear witness. O Israel, he continues in verse 7, I will testify against you. And then I'm going to follow the, the Hebrew word order here. He says, God, your God am I. And once again, there's this solemn and stately gravity to these utterances. This is the holy God speaking to Israel. Now in verse 8, I want to I suggest to you what I think is happening here, and then we'll come back and read it together. I think in verse 8 what he's saying is, I'm not rebuking you because there aren't sacrifices on the altar. There are sacrifices on the altar. I am rebuking you for your mistaken assumptions about those sacrifices. Okay, so, so the burnt animals are before me, but you're thinking wrongly about them. Your theology is deficient. So verse 8, the Lord says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. And then we keep reading here in verse 9. I want to change one word in the way the ESV renders this. The ESV renders this, I will not accept a bull from your house. I think the NAS says something along the lines of, I will take no bull from your house. And I think a word like take or maybe even receive it has better connotations here because in view of verse 10, if you look at verse 9, I will not, ex- I will not take a bull from your house or goats from your fields. Verse 10, the explanation is, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So what's the Lord saying? I think the Lord is saying something like this to Israel. It's not that I need these animals. Look at my resources. I don't need you to bring me animals. What does this imply about the way that Israel is thinking? Israel seems to be thinking something like this. Oh, God God is somehow supplied by these offerings that we make to him. He needs us. God needs us. And God is saying, we got this backwards. It's not me that needs you. It's you that need to worship. The need is not in God. The need for worship is not in God. The need is in the people. The sacrifices are necessary Because Israel is sinful. The sacrifices are enabling Israel to dwell in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed, not be struck dead. God didn't need those sacrifices. Israel needed those sacrifices. Those sacrifices didn't bring to God something he lacked. They satisfied his justice against sin by making atonement. Uh, and, And... In view of other things the Bible says, it's clear that it's not that God loves sacrifices. What God wants is righteous, holy obedience. And then when people who are trying to obey fail to succeed in obeying, God makes this provision of sacrifice that they can offer because they blew it. So Israel was not enriching the Lord, from their flocks and herds. He had no lack. He had an overwhelming abundance. Think for a moment moment about these sacrifices. These are expensive animals. I mean, in our day, if you want to buy a goat or a bull, 
or something like this, you're going to pay anywhere from maybe $300 to $1,500 to even more than that, depending upon what kind of animal we're talking about. This is an expensive proposition to take this thing up to the tabernacle or the temple, to, to cut it up in pieces and to burn it up on, on the altar of burnt offering. And the point that's being made here is Israel needs to be right with God more than they need the wealth of those animals. Israel needs to be right with God more than they need what those animals provide for them. Um, look, at, look at verse 11. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew uh, term for all that moves in the field is ziz. It's, it's like a, one of these little buzzing things, you know, that you hear out um, at this time of year, these, these cicadas. That, that they probably named the thing because of the sound it makes, ziz or something like this. So, and there's even an, a, a little insect that we call a ziziva. Uh, the terms may be connected here, I don't know. Uh, but what the Lord is saying is, look, I have no lack. I have no deficiency. And this speaks to us today. It speaks to us in terms of how we think about, about church, right? Don't come here because you think God needs you here. God doesn't need you here. Don't, don't put money in the box back there because you think God needs the money. God doesn't need the money. Don't, don't tell people about Jesus because you think God needs you to do that. God doesn't need you to do that. God can get the job done without you. It's not that God that needs these things. We're the ones who need these things. We come here because it's good for us. We come here because we need this. We put money in that box because it's good for us. It's good for us to break off those links of those chains of materialism. It's, it's good for us to tell people about Jesus. It's the most loving thing we can do for them. It's not the Lord who needs Israel's service. It's Israel who needs to serve the Lord. It's not, it's not the Lord who needs our service. It's we who need to serve him. So what the Lord is doing in verses 7 through 11 is refuting a false assumption about the source and the ownership of these sacrificial animals. And, and the point he's making is, all this stuff already belongs to me. And that's going to be extended into a second mistaken assumption in verses 12 and 13. And that second mistaken assumption seems to go like this. God needs these things to be sustained. God doesn't have animals, so we bring them to him. And, and then, because they don't understand the God of the Bible, he must somehow eat that animal and drink that blood to stay alive. Because otherwise... He'd be hungry and thirsty. And the Lord is going to refute that very directly. He repudiates this, asking scornfully in verse 12, or say, an announcing, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. So, so look, the world and all its fullness exist for the Lord. He has everything why would he need Israel to provide his food? And then to guard against the idea that, oh, okay, he owns those things, but maybe he created the world to sustain himself. Now he asks this scornful question here in 
Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Probably what's, what's happened here, and, and you, you, know, you, can read, you can read ancient texts. There's an intertestamental text about how these idol worshipers, uh, they're thinking that their idol in their temple is consuming the sacrifices brought to him. And really what's happening is these wicked priests are breaking in there and having a feast every night. And that's eventually exposed. But you can see the way the people are thinking, right? The people are thinking, oh, we bring these offerings and sacrifices, and that sustains the life of our God. And that's a very common assumption. That's the assumption that you see in, in ancient Greek literature. In, in uh, those Greco-Roman myths, they had a convenient story that their God didn't like the fat part. They, their gods didn't like the fat parts of the animals. Their gods, in other words, their gods didn't like the meat. Their gods liked the ligaments and the bones, the stuff that humans... Uh, couldn't, couldn't be sustained on. Isn't that convenient, you know? We offer these sacrifices, but the meat, the gods don't like the meat. So we'll just eat that part. We'll give the gods the ligaments and the bones. But, but, but the idea is the same. The gods are somehow being sustained on these burnt offerings. And the Lord is saying, I don't need those things to stay alive. Yahweh is the creator God's creation in no way sustains him. He did not create the world to meet some need that he had, nor did he ordain the sacrifices that he gave to Israel so that they could meet some need that he had. And when he says what he says next in verses 14 and 15, here, here too he is not declaring what his real need is. So we should not think that the Lord somehow needs the thanks and praise of men. That's, that's the wrong way to look at it. He has myriads upon myriads of angels and heavenly beings at his disposal who could meet that need if he had such a need. But that's not the issue. He has no need for that. Verse 14, he says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, the point is not, you know, you make a sacrifice and you do it gratefully. No, the point is the gratitude is the sacrifice. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What, what God wants from you is gratitude. That's what he's saying. And then perform your vows to the Most High, which I think is a way of saying keep your word. If you say that you're going to conduct yourself a certain way toward the Lord, do it. Don't be one of these people who makes all these public promises about how you're going to serve the Lord and honor him in all things, and then you go off and live how you want to live. And then he says in verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. What's the Lord asking for here from Israel? I think he's asking for a rightly ordered relationship with these people. God is saying to them, Look at everything I've done for you. Look at everything I've given to you. The way that I want you to respond is with a grateful heart. The way that I want you to respond is the way that a child responds to his father. A child instinctively cries out to help, cries out for help to his father because he believes that his father is good and able to help and willing to help and powerful. That's the way the Lord wants to be reached out to. The Lord says, I will deliver you, 
and you shall glorify me. So there's not some secret prideful corner in God's heart that's being gratified by this thanks and praise that he's demanding. No, he wants a rightly ordered relationship. It's, it's like, you know, if we go over to the Pang's house, they want to fellowship with us. And it's right for us to say, thank you for your hospitality. This food tastes great. It's right for us to honor them and express gratitude to them. And then you just translate that into your relationship with God. Look at, the, look at your life. Look at the world. We ought to feel, thank you, Lord. We ought to feel, you are so good to me, God. We need to praise him. We're made to praise him. We owe him thanks and praise. And, and so as we, as we think about these things, we, we, we have to get our minds right about the Lord. We, 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 we should not think of him as in any way being deficient. We are, we are not putting him in our debt by meeting his needs out of our abundance. What, we, what we're doing is what he's created us to do. Uh, last night, uh, Kurt and the Kurt Sharbaugh, we were talk, they were talk, Kurt and Denny and the guys were talking about superhero movies, none of which I've seen. But Kurt said, so I'm just sitting there clueless trying to act like I have a little bit of an idea of what they're talking about. Um, and, and Kurt says the worldview is reflected in the movies. And he, and he mentions one of these movies, probably some of you have seen it, in which somebody says we were made to bow to power, something like that. We were made to bow. That's true. That's a true statement about, about pe- this is why we like to watch um, heroic feats of accomplishment in sports This is why we like to go to places like the Grand Canyon. We're made to feel awe and wonder. We're created for this. It's good for us to respond this way. And so worship is something that's good for us. So we need to reconceive our thoughts on everything from giving to serving the church to doing evangelism, to studying the Bible, to spending time with the Lord in prayer. We are not bringing him things that he needs because he is lacking or somehow deficient. We're doing things that are good for us, things that we need. And we need to repent of the false theology that that in any way whispers, God is not independent or God is not self-sufficient. God is altogether self-sufficient and independent. He, does, he has no needs. We need to repent of any, any way that we indicate that God, that God is somehow lacking. Look at verse 15 again. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is a relationship of love. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and you shall, I will deliver you. You shall deliver, you shall glorify me. So that's the word addressed, I think, to the righteous who are trying to keep the covenant. And I say that because look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says. So the Lord now turns to people who are making a different kind of false assumption. Both of these false assumptions, I think, are arising from people thinking about the Lord the way they think about themselves. 
We have needs. God must have needs. I get hungry. God must, have, God must get hungry. Now, look at what he says here to these people. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And the statutes and the covenant in view seems to be the covenant with Moses at Sinai and the statutes of the Ten Commandments. Verse 17, you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. So they, they, they hate it when the Lord applies pressure on them to conform them to his policies. And, and they instead of having the, the commandments and the word of God in front of them as a light for their path, as guideposts in the dark, they put these things behind them so that they can go on about their way. And they break the commandments. Verse 18, if you see a thief, thou shalt not steal. You're pleased with him. What a clever person. What a deal maker. What a successful business. No, he's a thief is what he is. And you keep company with adulterers. This is the opposite of holiness, right? Holiness is separation from those who brag and boast about their, their uh, illicit conquests with married women. That's what holiness does. It separates from people like this. The opposite of that is, how about we nominate him as a candidate for president? You give your mouth free reign for evil. So there are actions, thievery, adultery, and then there are words. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. There's just ongoing accomplishment of evil through words and deceit, these webs of it woven through the tongue. And then there's no honor for father and mother. There's no keeping of one's brother. In verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Verse 21, these things you have done, and I have been silent. So the Lord says, you've been carrying on in your wickedness, and I have been silently watching all of it happen. And the witnesses to the covenant have seen it all. And then these devastating words in verse 21, you thought that I was one like yourself. You're not bothered by sin. You thought I wasn't bothered by sin. You don't uphold righteousness. You thought I wouldn't uphold righteousness. You don't call sinners to account. You thought I wouldn't call sinners to account. So verses 7 through 15, people making assumptions about how God is like them. Verses 16 through 21, people making assumptions about how God was like them. Sin, do, sin doesn't bother them. They assume it won't bother God either. God, however, now announces that he is rebuking them and setting the case out before their eyes, and their guilt is evident and inescapable. He says there at the end of verse 21, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God is not at all like us. And then the psalmist gives us the application that he wants us to take away from the psalm. Verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God, that's what's at the root of all of this sin, 
you who forget God. You, you're not thinking rightly about the Lord, and that's resulting in wrong thoughts as you offer the sacrifices. Thoughts about God needing these. You're not, think, you're not mindful of the Lord, and so you think you're going to get away with this breaking of His commandments. And so implicitly, I think one overarching, pounding message of this psalm is, remember God. Be mindful of Him. Retain Him in your thoughts. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart. Uh, This is imagery that assumes that what the Bible says elsewhere about the Lord is going to come true. And he is going to be like a lion, enraged, on the hunt when he comes to judge his people. And what's, what's implicit in these statements? Mark this then, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Implicitly, that's a statement that says you need to repent. You need to turn away from the way you're living. You need to stop tolerating this iniquity. You need to stop having these wrong thoughts about God when you come for worship. Lest you experience his wrath. And then he reiterates what it is that God wants from us there in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So there it is again. Thanks and praise. In, in Romans 1, the, the, the root problem with the sinners that Paul is indicting in Romans 1.21, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And so there, there's, a, there's a repentance that's called for in verse 22. And then there's a, a recognition of God. And, and I think that would entail clearly faith. You believe what the Bible says. And then look at the rest of verse 23. To the one who orders his way rightly. What does that look like? It looks like walking in accordance with the teaching of Scripture. To that person, the person who has repented, believed, and given evidence of a changed life, the Lord says here, I will show the salvation of God. A couple more points of application here. And and I'm just going to take some of the statements in the psalm and turn them. Verse 17, you hate discipline. Let me urge you, heed the the author of Hebrews, love God's discipline. Don't despise it. God is loving you when he brings discipline into your life. Uh, Verse 17 again, you cast my words behind you. Don't do that. Love God's word. Treasure it. You're pleased with a thief. You keep company with adulterers. How do we apply that? Well, don't delight in sinners. Don't delight in sinners. We have to be so careful. We have to so guard our hearts because so many of the jokes in our culture, so much of the entertainment in our culture is glorifying this. Don't delight in sinners. I'm, I'm not saying be cruel to them. I'm not saying be mean to them or anything like that. But we have to be careful that we don't fall afoul of this condemnation in verse 18. Being pleased with thieves and keeping company with adulterers as though it's okay. It's not okay. And then verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil 
Your tongue frames deceit. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Uh, We all stumble in many ways. And the tongue, it's it's the only muscle in the body that's not joined at both ends. And the thing is dangerous. And we will often be repenting. Just as God didn't need the old covenant sacrifices because he lacked resources or felt physical hunger, God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. Just as the sacrifices were needed by Israel to enjoy God's presence, so today we are beneficiaries of this new covenant offering of ourselves as living sacrifices. You know what our giving thanks and praise to God is like? It's like... um, It's like my wife putting our little two-year-old boy to bed last night. And she goes through this little litany of reciting all the people that love him. And she, you know, she tells him that daddy loves him and that Jesus loves him and that she loves him. And then he says to her, me love you, mommy. That's what our thanks and praise is like. And, and what it does is it enriches and deepens the relationship. That's what it does. It, it makes her feel overwhelmed with love for him. And it enables him to, to complete and express what he was made to do. He was made to love his mother. Let's pray together. Father, we exist for you. We We're created by you to enjoy your goodness, to worship you. Lord, keep us from being ungrateful people who honor everything and everyone but you. Make us mindful of your presence, we pray. Help us to remember you and help us to offer you the thanks and praise of which you are so worthy. In Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit, amen.